0: Mystery, and if you love a mystery, you've come to the right place. This is Horse Mysteries. My name is David dedrick
1: My name's Lisa Williamson.
0: And this week we have a a brand new episode of a mystery involving horses. And uh, what's this one called, dear?
1: It's called "There's More Than One Criminal Type."
0: There's more than one criminal type. Mm-hmm. All right, that seems vague. <laughs> Well, I was trying to be polite, but yeah, that seems sort of vague. There's more than one. So there's more than one criminal type. Uh, everyone, this show is a, a mystery, I guess a true crime mystery podcast with mysteries based around horses. We've had several kind of true. I should said I said true crime and then I kind of blew it there because really the last episode wasn't true crime. It was a medical mystery mm-hmm. that evolved no crime at all except for the crime of cupidity by the people who were... Uh, keeping secrets about their horses' illnesses so, mm-hmm. in order to keep the market going. I guess, uh, yeah. I guess that's as far as their crime went. But anyway, this week's is... Uh, is this
1: week a real true crime, Here or are we going to have a medical yeah. mystery again? No, we're back to true crime.
0: Oh, okay. So uh, what's it called again?
1: Sir? It's, it's called uh, There's More Than One Criminal Type. There's
0: More Than One Criminal Type. I'm sorry. It's okay. just not... It's not doing it for me. <laughs>
1: okay. Yeah. No, I struggled with this one, so okay. maybe it will make sense once we. Yeah. Once we get further in.
0: So. Let's let's uh, let's listen to it, and uh, if anyone can come up with another ending that would another title for it, uh, let us know.
1: Mm-hmm. We will start in nineteen ninety six. Okay. And the place is Houston, Texas.
0: Houston, Texas in
1: 1966?
0: No, 1996.
1: Sorry, 1996. Okay. <laughs> okay, and so what happened in Houston, Texas in 1996 was uh, US, or Assistant U.S. Attorney Julia Hyman mm-hmm. was in Houston, Texas on a team investigating one of the worst financial scandals in American history. So, her assignment was to look at white-collar crimes, such as money laundering and check kiting, in relation to a large-scale spate of Texas bank failures that occurred between 1980 and 1992.
0: All right. So, that's kind of the famous savings and loans disaster mm-hmm. of the exactly of that time that. period. That was a, a different banking disaster as opposed to the one in the 2000s. 2008, so yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay, so yeah, she's looking at a bunch of papers, so she follows this paper trail, uh, investigates 485 banks and 238 savings and loan institutions in Texas that ended up going under. So in or 1988 alone, 175 banks with assets of $47.3 billion failed, which accounted for 25% of the state's banking assets. And a year later, in 1989, an additional 134 banks failed, which accounted for another 13.6% of the state's banking assets. So these losses included nine out of 10 of the state's most significant banking institutions, like First City Bank Corporation. Wow. I used to have a First City Bank, like I guess credit card, I think, a long time ago.
0: Okay. I don't know. The City Bank, I think, is different than First City Bank, though. Oh. City Bank, I believe, is a New York-based bank.
1: Yes. Okay. That's the one I have. All right. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, back to reality. So, again, yeah, 1996. So, as she's looking through the paperwork from First City National Bank, in particular, Mm -hmm. um, First City National Bank, based in Houston, uh, Hyman comes across a document that mentions a place called Calumet Farms. Okay. And then she comes across another document that mentions a name, Alidar. Mm. So she has no idea what these names are or what they signify. But a very quick bit of research discovers she discovers that Calumet Farm is an eight hundred and eighty-acre thoroughbred breeding farm in Lexington, Kentucky. So you might be familiar with it because there are scenes from the movie Sea Biscuit shot there. Okay. So, yeah, the farm had produced some of the world's best thoroughbred racehorses in the 20th century, but then it declared bankruptcy in 1991, so nine months after the 1990 accidental death of its leading stallion, Alidar.
0: I've heard of Alidar as well. you mm-hmm. so we may Maybe know the story. Yeah. Hmm. So, in June
1: 1997, Hyman travels to Kentucky with rookie FBI agent Rob Foster to ask more questions about Alidar's death. Hmm. So while she's in Kentucky, the pair go to Calumet Farm to visit Elidar Stall. They visit both the Calumet Vet Clinic and then the world famous Rude and Riddle Equine Hospital, which is basically the mayo clinic for horses. Okay. The pair also go to a construction site uh, where a former calumet groom was working at the time. Then three years later in October. Of 2000, Hyman attends a hearing in a federal courtroom in Texas and informs the judge that the death of star racehorse and leading sire Elidar was not an accident.
0: So, sorry, wait, she's in court?
1: Yeah, she announces this in court.
0: Okay. Was this uh, during a completely unrelated trial? She just stood up and announced
1: Mm, it? It (laughs) wasn't unrelated. It was related, but it was very unexpected. Okay. Okay.
0: This was on the soap opera, All Our Horses.
1: That's right. In 1889, Chicago-area salesman William Wright revolutionized home and commercial baking after he developed a formula that would replace cream of tartar.
0: Hmm.
1: Cream of tartar.
0: It's time we got rid of that stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah confused me when I was younger and learning how to bake because I remember coming across a recipe that called for cream of tartar and I'm like cream of tartar yeah what is that and so I opened the fridge up I looked at our cupboards and nothing there mm-hmm. opened the fridge up found this bottle says tartar sauce I'm like cream of tartar tartar sauce cream Ooh, yeah. sauce same thing but sure. yeah tartar sauce in this recipe anyway it didn't turn out exactly as planned but
0: has, has C- <laughs> cream of tartar and vinegar is really good for cleaning uh, uh, pots and pans. That oh, yeah, has, yeah. Burned, uh, burned. Uh...
1: Right. Okay. So, yeah. Basically, Wright made a fortune as the owner of the Calumet Baking Powder Company.
0: So, uh, he created baking powder.
1: Yes. So, that's what he invented.
0: And that's a replacement for t- cream of cream yeah. tartar.
1: Yeah. Interesting.
0: Well, I guess so, but... I mean, he just replaced one powder with another. It's not like it's a Yeah, rich I guess revolution. it must have
1: done a better job, <laughs> sure. though, significantly yeah, better. Yeah. So, yeah. Maybe anyway.
0: replaced a series of things besides yeah. the cream retarder. Yeah.
1: Made him a lot of money. Made him a rich man. Hmm. So, enough that, I mean, this was in... Well, it was magic. Yeah, 1889 when he invented it, but it was still quite a few years later, 1914, he got into horse racing. So, yeah. Anyways, um, hmm. And what he got into was standard bread racing. He said, I have too much money.
0: I need to throw some down a a hole in (laughs) the ground.
1: That's right. Yeah. So then 10 years later, uh, 1924, he moved to Kentucky and bought a farm called Fairland. But then he immediately changed its name to Calumet. And we had talked in a previous episode, this was I think the inaugural episode, about the other famous horse farm where fan phrelouche was kidnapped yes, from so, yes. yeah this was another one here calumet that used to be a regular in bloodhorse magazine I advertising see. you know lots of stallions that sure. it stood so i'm familiar very familiar with this name
0: as we established in that episode as well bloodhorse magazine was a magazine advertising thoroughbreds yes, yes.
1: Thurbridge. yeah
0: Thurbridge. was it entirely just ads on thoroughbred it wasn't like it had no articles about
1: no. It had the it had, had ten articles. ways
0: to get keep your thoroughbred happy.
1: No, no, it was more racing news, like who won what, and maybe mm. profiles of horses and trainers. But no, every so often, I think there might be a medical thing in there, but it wasn't really an advice magazine. It was a very serious. I seem to remember it being a monthly magazine, just kind of keeping you up to date with the latest racing news. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, uh, 1929, Wright sold the Calumet Baking Powder Company to General Foods for $32 million, which back then would have been a lot of money. Sure. Uh, it made the Wright... Right
0: now would be a lot of money. <laughs> yeah.
1: Made the Wright family one of the USA's wealthiest families, which helped to carry them through the Depression. I see. Uh, he died in 1931 and passed the farm down to his son, Warren, who... Had been actively involved in both the business and the farm. So Warren had been company president since 1895. Uh, Warren quickly made the shift from standardbred to thoroughbred horses, okay. though, and yeah, that's when they established a racing dynasty. Hmm. So in the 1940s, the farm produced two Triple Crown winners: so Whirlaway in 1941 and Citation in 1948. As well as seven additional, sorry, wait,
0: 1931 and 1948?
1: 1941, oh, sorry, yeah, 1941. world away, and Citation in 1948. Okay, that's yeah. pretty good. Very good, yeah, because that's the ones that they won three of the races, so Kentucky Derby, Preakness, yeah, yeah. and Belmont. Mm-hmm. So, in addition, they produced seven Kentucky Derby winners between 1941 and 1968. Hmm. So Warren had married a lady called Lucille, who was 20 years his junior in 1919. Hmm. Uh, Everyone described her as a proper lady. She always wore a hat and white gloves, even when she was out on the farm. Um, They had not had any children of their own, but they had adopted or claimed to have adopted a son that they named Warren Wright Jr. Uh, He was described as likable but scatterbrained. Uh, It said, Warren Jr.'s adoption was questioned by some who felt maybe he was the illegitimate offspring of one of the couple because there was supposed to be a very striking family resemblance. But, Hmm. yes. So Warren then died of a heart attack in 1950, and Lucille took over the racing end of the business. Uh, She was devoted to the horses and the farm. Uh, She was described as a conservative owner um, and she successfully, successfully turned Calumet into North America's topped money-producing racehorse farm all through the 1950s. Hmm. Wow. So under the term of Warren's will, she had been granted lifetime tenancy at the farm, but had also been given the option to sell it. If she chose not to sell, the farm would then be passed on to their heirs, so that would be Warren Jr. and his wife and children, who already had trust funds set up for them so that they would be taken care of for life. I see. Then in 1952, so that's two years after Warren's death, Lucille remarried. The guy that she married was a retired World War II Navy Admiral called Gene Markey. So in addition to his military service, Markey had spent time as a Hollywood screenwriter, between nineteen twenty three and nineteen fifty six, Markey had been involved had been involved in approximately forty films, hmm. um, but most of his writing career took place in the nineteen thirties. Okay. He was a popular fixture in Hollywood society and was well known for his conversational skills. Hmm. And Lucille was his fourth wife. I see. He had been previously married to Joan Bennett, Hedy Lamar, oh. and Myrna Loy.
0: Joan Bennett, who Sneaky Dragon fans will know as the uh, matriarch of the Collins family on Dark Shadows.
1: Oh, okay. Awesome.
0: Wow, what a that's great. It's so all interlinked yeah. together, these shows.
1: Bringing it around. <laughs> so, yeah, Lucille enjoyed socializing with um, yeah high society people, famous people, film people. Uh, one of her best friends was racehorse owner and son of the Iga Khan, Prince Ali Khan.
0: I see. Hmm. But- I'm starting to see a a name appear Mm -hmm, mm here.
1: So, Lucille actively disliked her adopted son, Warren Jr. Hmm. So, outside of the family, Warren basically made his living uh, running a local insurance agency. Um, Lucille's second husband, Gene Markey, tried to mediate the, I don't know, brewing feud, whatever, (laughs) um, inviting Warren Jr. and his family to dinners, but it was very toxic. Uh, Later on, Lucille's dislike grew, uh, even more when Warren Jr. was jailed for non-payment of income tax, and after this, Lucille would only see him by appointment. Okay. So, Warren Jr. was not at all interested in Calumet, not at all interested in the horses, and he died prematurely in 1978, leaving his wife and four children who were similarly uninterested in the family business, other than the dividends that it was paying. Yes. There was only one grandchild, a girl called Lucille, who had been named after the matriarch, who went by the name Cindy, who was at all interested.
0: So back
1: in 1962, Cindy, when she was 16, had met a local, a 21-year-old J.T. Lundy, who was basically a sharecropper or tenant farmer's True. son yeah. from the neighborhood. He was described as a wild youth. <laughs> uh, he had spent his teen years racing his souped-up car up and down the road beside Calumet. And he had always been interested in horses, and had been heard on many occasions to declare that one day he would own Calumet farms. I see. So he married the granddaughter. <laughs> Okay, so Lundy was variously described as an ambitious outsider, notoriously unattractive, and uncouth. He basically didn't fit in with Calumet's high society, uh, but... Fortunately for Lundy, Cindy herself shied away from her grandmother's lifestyle, and so in some ways, Lundy was an ideal match for her, because they were able to buy a smaller farm down the road and kind of live their own lifestyle. Okay. So Lucille had been vehemently against Cindy marrying Lundy, so the two had eloped when Cindy was 17, so that meant Lucille could do nothing about it. Hmm. She did not feel that they were worthy heirs for Calumet, even though they're the only two that expressed any interest. I see. Yeah. So, meanwhile, uh, Lucille, her, as she's getting older, her one of her final desires was to produce one more Kentucky Derby winner. I see. That was her goal.
0: So the farm had produced the two winners in the 40s and hadn't had any since then? Uh,
1: no, up to 1968, it had uh, produced, like... Kentucky Derby winners so okay. most of their big winners were through the 1940s and 50s I but see. yeah they did have another one in 1968 so she did have one who looked like a very promising young colt and so she named it after her friend the Prince Ali Khan who she always referred to as Ellie Darling hmm. and so the horse became registered with the jockey club under the name Ali Dar so that's spelled a-l-y-d-a-r I see all one word so, he was a 1975 Colt. He looked like a great prospect, so she hired top trainer John Veach. Unfortunately, Ali Dar ran second in every Triple Crown race to the eventual Triple Crown champion Affirmed. So, he does mm. sort of hold the... Well, her- guess,
0: affirmed is like the second best horse of... Isn't, or is, isn't he going to kind know. of put...
1: I don't know if he was second best, but I think he was the... Well, after Secretariat, mm-hmm. there was Seattle Slew, and then there was a little bit of a gap again, and then it was Affirmed. Okay. Um, But, yeah, Affirmed was a very classy-looking horse. People, Some people felt that Seattle Slew, even though he had won the races, didn't deserve the title of Triple Crown Champion because okay. he had been... It was just a very plain looking brown horse. Yeah. Um, not very handsome. He had been purchased for $17,000 at a yearling sale, which people felt was not kind of up to snuff with the top. And then I think his owners were from Seattle or something. Yeah. Seattle Slough. Um So there was a lot of things that the kind of snootier people who had been invested in the, the business for decades were just looked down his nose at him, Yeah, even though he had, you know, performed the way he should have done. But yeah. then Affirmed came along and he was a very, very bright chestnut, big, majestic looking horse. And so people were very happy, I think, that he won mm. all three races. But yeah, I think the sad part for Alidar was yeah, he's gone down with the dubious distinction of being the only horse ever to have run second in every single race. A lot of horses have run second in the first two and then they're just like what's the point and don't show off for <laughs> yeah. the third race but sure. yeah he kept coming out and trying and he just kept running second hmm. which is not to say he was a bad racehorse yeah, yeah he was a good racehorse so he was in the money 24 of his 26 races uh he won 10 major stakes races and he made just under a million dollars so when he retired to the stallion barn, his progeny immediately proved that he was a top stallion, and he did eclipse Affirmed. Get so he was a better stallion than Affirmed was. Hmm. Yeah. So his initial stud fee was forty thousand dollars for live full. Wow. Yeah. So thinking back to um, the quarter horse we talked about last week. Yes. Um, impressive. What was he? Twenty, twenty five hundred. I think to start, it went up, I think it yeah. went up to 25,000 eventually, but, um, yeah, this is his first time out of the gate as a, as a stallion, he's getting 40,000 for live full. <laughs> anyway, so Lundy attempted to convince Lucille that more money could be made on Alidar, but Lucille loathed him, <laughs> Lundy, not Alidar, yeah. um. She would not listen to Lundy at all. She would not allow him on the property. She would not even allow him to pay to breed his mares to her stallion. So, yeah, she would not accept his business in any way. She had told her trainer, Vetch, she said, if there's any way in this world I can keep him, Lundy, from having it, Calumet, I would. (laughs) Uh, However, the one option she had was to sell Calumet to prevent him from getting it. But it was felt that she loved being Lady Calumet too much. Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing is that Lundy and his attorney, a guy called Lyle Roby, were constantly barraging her with unsolicited advice. And it was felt that if she sold Calumet, then they would make things even messier, lawsuits, all the rest of it. Sure. So yeah, Warren Wright, when he had predeceased his adoptive mother in 1978, uh, Lucille did not attend her adoptive son's funeral and made it clear to Calumet staff that they should not attend either. And then, so Admiral Markey had died in 1980, and on July 24th, 1982, Lucille Markey died. And some things say she died at age 85, and some say 93. So... Who knows? No one really knew how old she was. So, at that time, the estate included not just Calumet Farm and its assets, but Texas oil and gas holdings. Warren's will had stated that on Lucille's death, 20% of the estate would go to charity, 30% would go to the grandchildren, and 50% would go to Warren Jr. But since Warren Jr. had predeceased Lucille, then basically 80% went to the grandchildren. So... This is where it kind of gets a little odd, because by this time, uh, Cindy and Lundy had separated. They were living separately. Uh, and they hadn't, I don't know that they had separated in their marriage, but uh, she basically had moved to a different house and was living in a different state and often in a different country. She would go down to the Caribbean And just stay there all the time. So, yeah, they weren't living together. So, in spite of all that, Lucille's heirs still granted Lundy, who is 41 years old at this time, full discretionary management powers over Calumet Farm. So, in 1982, when Lundy took over, Calumet was not just debt-free, but had a multi-million dollar nest egg and was turning a profit.
0: Uh Uh-oh. Mm-hmm.
1: So Lundy's first step as president of Calumet was to order a multi-million dollar restoration, which included the installation of iron gates in the main entrance. And you can look those up online. They're big red gates. Uh, he had 23 miles of fences repainted white. And from then on, uh, he was very good with the upkeep of the fences. And that alone cost uh, $12,000 a month. Wow. Just fixing fences. Uh, he put in a state-of-the-art vet clinic. He, It had a treadmill in it and a rehab pool for horses. <laughs> and the pool alone cost a million dollars. He put in a high-tech, freeze-proof water troughs all around the farm. Uh, he put in a 5 mile turf track. And then he bought tons of new racehorses and stallions. I see. So there was one stallion named Secreto who was purchased for between 20 and 30 million, and Calumet only had a half interest in that horse. And then he bought another stallion um, for eight million dollars uh, called Mogambo, but both of them turned out to be failures in the breeding shed. Oof. Yeah. So meanwhile, when as he took over, all the other key players in the Calumet farm business left, either voluntarily or otherwise. So that included the office manager, the farm manager, the yearling manager, and the racehorse trainer. Many of these people had been involved in the farm for decades. Hmm. Uh, Cindy, again, was not interested in the farm and was basically out of the country most of the time. I see. So he financed all his projects on a thirteen point two million dollar bank loan that was financed to gain what was at that time a debt free farm. so the unsuspecting right heirs blithely signed whatever paperwork he put in front of them hmm. so he also raised Alidar's stud fee from forty thousand dollars to a quarter of a million dollars and did something that had never before been done in the thoroughbred world, which was sold lifetime breeding rights for two point five million so. You could pay $2.5 million and every year send one mare to him for as long as he lived. Wow. Yeah. So through this move alone, he was able to raise $50 million. Okay. Yeah. So meanwhile, at the Keeneland sales, Elidar's unproven offspring were selling on average for about $760,000. So mm-hmm. any foals that the farm was producing were bringing money in. He was making lots of money with Ali Dar as a stallion.
0: That's his one his one, uh, one. trick pony. I guess. Oh, that's it. Yes. One yeah. trick pony. Yeah, that's all they had going for him.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but he wasn't seeing that, obviously, because he continued to spend lavishly, not just on the farm, but on himself as well. So he put in new tennis courts. He put in a gazebo. He put <laughs> in a human swimming pool. He renovated the office. He put a Balcony out where he could survey his kingdom. Uh, He leased a private jet for $30,000 a month. He bought property in Vail, in the Caribbean, and in Florida. Uh, He also sponsored the race cars of one of his longtime heroes, A.J. Foyt. And he ordered a whole fleet of vehicles from Foyt's Houston car dealership. Yeah, (laughs) spendaholic. He also got himself a girlfriend, his secretary.
0: I see. Mm Mm-hmm so what could go wrong
1: exactly yeah so yeah he kept spending um, but he also continued borrowing from the bank hmm. so in 1986 he had taken out or by 1986 he had taken out 20 million dollar mortgage on the farm and he had picked up a 15 million dollar line of credit from a kentucky bank but at this time the racing world went into a financial slump that was related to rising oil prices and also changes in tax laws that eliminated tax breaks for horse pur- horse purchases, hmm. which is actually why my parents got out of racehorses as well. Is that it's, right? Yeah. They had been um, selling at the yearling sales and all of a sudden the prices tanked. Hmm. And so, yeah, my dad just pulled the plug right away. Huh. Yeah. But remember- he
0: didn't didn't uh, go get a $15 million line of credit from a Kentucky bank to- No. Uh,
1: I would have liked a pool.
0: You <laughs> would have pooled in the- <laughs> No.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, in spite of this, he just kept on spending. You had a
0: dugout. Don't complain.
1: Yeah. I could, have, I could have swam in that. Yeah. So, but this guy, he just kept on spending. So, later, the same year, 86, he took out an additional $10 million loan from the Kentucky Bank that he already had a $15 million loan from. Hmm. And then two years later, 1988, he took out a $50 million loan from Houston's First City Bank Corporation which at the time was one of the state's largest bank-holding companies with more than 60 banks and $12 billion in assets. Hmm. So the banker who was behind the massive Calumet loan was the vice chairman of First City, a guy called Frank C. Seahack. So Seahack was a person who didn't like to be second-guessed. Underlings who questioned him were basically fired immediately. Okay. Okay. He had made his name as a commodities broker... Uh, and then had made a deal with his first city boss, a guy called A. Robert Abood, that he would be allowed to authorize loans of up to $120 million without having to go through traditional loan committees. So the $50 million Calumet loan was one of these.
0: I see. So these are unsecured loans, basically, that mm-hmm. he was making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brilliant.
1: Yes. Well... He's a Wheeler dealer. So I guess when it's working for you, it's working for you. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Seahack told First City loan officers to not check Calumet's credit reference in the Kentucky bank where it already had its original loan. This would not seemed or deemed to be unusual as a credit check being done by one bank could be seen by that bank trying to steal, in quotation marks, the business of another bank's client. I see. Yeah. Then, First City employers were told to not audit the financial statements and farm appraisals that were presented by Lundy and Calumet's chief financial officer, Gary Matthews. This step was highly irregular. Hmm. All right. yeah, yeah. Next, only a couple of weeks after securing the $50 million loan, First City loan officers get a call from Calumet CFO Matthews asking for even more money. <laughs> So Calumet was already unable to make its loan payments. So Seahack steps in and signs off on the larger loan. He said Calumet just needed more time to gather money in the current depressed horse market. He transferred the Calumet loan to Structured Financing, a bank section that he personally headed. I see. And then he continued to handle the Calumet loan personally for the next two years. However. (laughs) Two years later. Yeah. By 1990, Calumet had over 100 racehorses at tracks all over the country. One of Elidar's sons, Criminal Type, had just made $2.2 million for the farm. Elidar was covering 100 mares at a quarter of a million each annually. Mm-hmm. Uh, locals refer to Elidar as Lundy's ATM. <laughs> but in October of that year, Frank Seahack resigned from First City Bank. So in the mm. preceding 29 month period the bank's pool of bad loans had risen to 433 million. Wow. Yeah, it is like unfathomable.
0: <laughs> well, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, on October 25th, 1990, the new First City VP calls Lundy and Matthews to tell them that their loan is being restructured. Calumet needed to repay $15 million by February 29th, 1991, or the bank would foreclose on Calumet Farm. Hmm. But because of what we had recently talked about resources all over the country, criminal type, making lots of money. To outsiders, Calumet appeared to be riding a resurgence. Yes. That that winter, or yeah, basically that winter, February 9th, 1991, they had the Eclipse Award dinner. So that's the... Kind of like the championship for the end of the year for sure. thoroughbreds nationally. And at that time, Calumet Farm received three major awards. They got one Eclipse Award for Breeder of the Year. They got one for Champion Older Horse and one for Horse of the Year, the Horse Criminal Type. Hmm. And this was the upcoming trainer, D. Wayne Lucas's first time on the podium for that prestigious award. So D. Wayne Lucas went on to win many, many more um Kentucky Derbies and Triple Crowns. Okay,
0: just yeah. not for Calumet.
1: No. and then. But during the awards ceremony, when Lundy was hailed as the reason for Calumet's resurgence on the racing scene, Bertha Wright, who was Warren Jr.'s widow and Cindy's mother, stood up from the back of the packed ballroom of the San Francisco's Fairmont Hotel and screamed out, Don't forget the rights! Which humiliated Lundy. <laughs> <laughs> So now we're back in 1996, Kay. Houston, Texas, um, and Julia Hyman is investigating the bank failures. And what she discovers is that Frank Chi regularly hired his friends as bank consultants. Then he steered $4 million in loans and fees to them, ultimately receiving kickbacks. Mm-hmm. And this scheme, in part, uh, ultimately led to the downfall of First City. I see. Yeah. So she continues to investigate Hack and is curious about how a person who was raised in an orphanage in Chicago ended up fronting a Texas bank that ended up loaning millions to a Kentucky racehorse farm. <laughs> uh, she discovered that he was a racing fan and an investor. She also learned that he was determined to get First City into lending money into equine businesses. I see. So she found out that a month after the first city loan to Calumet went through, Seahack received a personal loan for $1.1 million from a Kentucky company called Equine Capital Corporation, or ECC. <laughs> in tracing money in and out of ECC, she learns that the money did not originate with ECC, but rather Lundy and Matthews had put $1.1 million into the ECC fund, which was being run by Lundy Associates. Okay. Then the money was passed on to Seahack with no expectation for him to repay it. Seahack then used the money to lease two Calumet mares and breed them to Alidar. He also arranged through Lundy to buy a $125,000 breeding contract to a stallion they had called Secreto, but he only had to pay $1. Okay. All of these financial transactions were carried out through a complicated check-kiting scheme. So in return for all of this, Seahack had pushed through the $50 million loan for Calumet.
0: So check-kiting is just is uh, fake checks, I guess, yes, right? Yes, okay.
1: yeah. So the Calumet loan um, didn't really seem like a risky venture on paper, since Alidara alone was pulling in $25 million a year in stud fees. I see. Uh, But in reality, he was not making even half of that, partly due to those who had bought the lifetime membership, so that they had paid already and then they were they're getting their free breedings. Yeah. But also Lundy would give away free breedings to friends and associates if he wanted something from them. (laughs) Okay. So in 1990, Calumet was losing $1 million a month through its daily operations and through supporting Lundy's lavish lifestyle. Calumet by this time was pre-selling breedings to Alidar as the farm was having trouble making payroll. Wow. So Lundy was unable to secure any more loans. He was also unable to interest wealthy investors from Japan in purchasing a minor interest in the farm. And to add to the problem, in 1990, Criminal Type, Lundy's top racehorse, was injured just before the Lucrative Breeders' Cup race. Yeah. So that win would have brought Lundy several million dollars.
0: And what an unfortunate name for this, what's going on right now.
1: <laughs> yes. Okay, in 1990, Alidar was insured for $36.5 million, which made him the most heavily insured horse in history. Hmm. Lloyds of London was one of the insurers, but they had expressed dissatisfaction with Calumet's slowness in paying. Lundy had sent his sister and Matthews to give them one more chance, which they had did, so all the way to London. However, Golden Eagle Insurance in California, another insurer, was not so generous, and they had told Lundy that Alidar's policy would not be renewed when it expired in December. (music) On the evening of November 13th, 1990, Alidar was discovered in his stall with a broken leg. Hmm. He was in shock and covered in sweat. His cannon bone of his right hind leg had a compound fracture, and the lower portion of the leg was just hanging by tendons. Oh, no. Yeah. Lundy told attending veterinarians that had kicked the stall door so hard he had knocked loose a heavy metal roller that was bolted to the floor outside of the stall. So they would have had sliding doors? Yeah. So, although the primary veterinarian, equine orthopedic surgeon Dr. Larry Bramlage of the world renowned Rude and Riddle Equine Hospital, gave a bleak prognosis. Lundy begged the vet to perform surgery. So Alidar's cannon bone was plated and pinned and the leg was put in a cast the following day, November 14th. Mm Uh, as his condition was grave, so Alidar only lasted 24 hours. (laughs) So he was moving around in his stall at the vet clinic. He put too much weight on his leg and snapped his femur, which, of course, is inside the hindquarters. So, yeah, yeah, way higher up in the the same leg. So it just, they heard a loud snap. And he got put down November 15th, 1990. So, insurance adjuster Tom Dixon stated that just prior to Ali Dar being put down, unlike many others who stayed until the end, Lundy left the barn stating that he just couldn't take it. Yeah. I guess for lots of reasons. Okay, so what happened next? One of the people who was called to the initial scene of Ali Dar's injury was Tom Dixon, a Lexington based insurance adjuster who had been hired by Lloyd's of London to handle its equine claims. Okay. He was one of the few non-Calumet people at the scene so the initial scene when he was found with a when El- Elidar was found with a broken leg yeah. he took extensive notes he quickly filed a report to say that the death was accidental uh, Calumet had its money in under 30 days dixon proudly claimed that it was the fastest payoff in history okay huh. so he hypothesized whoops sorry 8 months later Calumet was officially declared to be insolvent. wow uh, they declared bankruptcy with more than one hundred and twenty seven million in debt. The farm at that time had four hundred dollars in cash in the bank.
0: Wow, come down, hey,
1: mm-hmm. so, and in such a short time,
0: so when he took over when
1: eighty two
0: so in eight years, yep, wow,
1: yeah, and with all that huge amount of money coming in as well like it wasn't like he started off with this giant mountain and just pulled from it all the time but it was never you know being replaced yeah 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 they still had money coming back in from alidar yeah yeah and then the insurance and still yeah couldn't couldn't pull it together not a businessman (laughs) no Julia Hyman learns that the night of Alidar's initial injury, another person who had tried to gain access to Calumet was Terry McVeigh, who worked for the Golden Eagle Insurance Company, but he had been denied entry by the guard at the gatehouse. So they let the one insurance agent in, okay. but they didn't let the other. I see. When he was finally able to gain access to the scene the next day, he found that everything in the barn area around Alidar's stall had been cleaned uh, the broken parts of the door and the caster were repaired. There was no sign of any struggle. Okay. McVeigh questioned why things were cleaned up so quickly without any investigation. He also questioned why, if Alidar was a kicker, there were no signs of him having kicked in his stall before, and his stall wasn't a padded stall. Hmm. Uh, later, Alidar's former trainer, John Veach, confirmed that Alidar had never been a kicker. I see. Ultimately, however, Golden Eagle also made a payment to Calumet. Hmm. So Hyman hypothesized that businesses like vets and insurance agents that made their living off of big horse farms might have been hesitant to ask even more questions for fear of losing a lot of business. There was also the fear that a scandal would injure the image of racing which was suffering due to the recession. The vets interviewed were insistent that the injury was accidental. So they theorized that Dar kicked the door, which broke the six-inch-long metal bracket just outside the door that helped to keep the sliding door on its track. Yeah. And in doing so, the dislodged door created a gap that Alidar got his leg through. In trying to free his leg, Elidar twisted, causing a torque fracture that ultimately ruptured the skin, causing an open fracture. Hmm. So Hyman and Foster, the FBI agent, interviewed Dr. Linda Rhodes-Stewart, who was Calumet's house vet that night. She had, by that time, moved on to a new job. And when Hyman and Foster asked to see Alidar's x-rays, Dr. Stewart stated that the radiographs had mysteriously disappeared from her files at the Calumet Clinic a year after Dar's death. Huh. When asked if anything else strange had happened that night, she stated that Watchman Alton Stone had been the first to call her to alert her to a problem. However, he only stated that something seemed to be wrong with Alidar and to come whenever she had a chance. There is no indication of any urgency or of the severity of the situation. Hmm. So on June 4th, 1997, Hyman and Foster tracked down a visibly nervous Alton Stone, who is now working as a construction worker in Kentucky. So he recalls that on the night of Dar's initial injury, he had been asked to take over the shift from regular night watchman Harold Cowboy Kip. Stone recounts how he spent the early part of the evening... One
0: second. Harold Cowboy Kip. Was cowboy. that a hyphenated name?
1: No, Her- Cowboy in question marks. I think his real name was Harold Kip, okay. but everyone calls him Cowboy. Okay. Yeah.
0: This one I have to yeah. establish.
1: Okay, so... His name
0: wasn't Harold Cowboy, then he married Harold- someone named Kip and then had the names.
1: <laughs> no, he, he married uh, Mrs. Cowboy. Um, <laughs> no, his mom was a cowboy and his dad was a Kip. Okay, I see. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, anyways, uh, so so Stone recounts how he spent the early part of the evening talking to the security job, the security guard, whose yep. job was to go... um. His job was to drive around the perimeter of the farm. Then at 9.30, Stone and the security guard left together to go to the t- canteen and get sodas. When they returned 15 minutes later, the security guard left on his rounds, and Stone noticed a problem with Alidar's leg. Foster then interviewed the security guard, someone called Keed Highly, and he learned that Highly had never been interviewed after Elidar's injury. In addition, Highly's version did not back up Stone's story. Hiley claimed that he had never spent time with Stone in the stallion barn that night prior to Dar being injured. He did stop by the barn at 10 to call his wife, and he saw Stone leaving the barn. Hiley hmm. also noticed that there were lights on in Lundy's office, which was unusual for that type of time of night. And while he was on the phone to his wife, Hiley heard a stallion whinnying repeatedly. So he went to check on the stallion. He noticed a problem with the leg, and he radioed Stone to call the vet. Hmm. So Foster was now convinced there was a cover-up. So he tracked down the man who normally should have been the night watchman that night, Harold Cowboy Kip. Kay. Cowboy. <laughs> okay. Yes. So Kip was still working at Calumet when he was interviewed by Foster, and he also stated he had never been interviewed about Alidar's death by any authorities. Hmm. So Harold Cowboy Kip. Was known for his reticence to take time off, and he recalled that five days before Alidar's death, a dark blue crowned Victoria with tinted windows pulled up beside him while he was at work. So a large man who he had seen before at Calumet, but he had always been unsure who this man was or what his role was, got out of the car. Mm-hmm. The man told him management was worried that Kip was getting burned out and told him he needed to take a day off. The man then suggested that Kip take off Tuesday, November 13th. As he was a type of employee who followed rules, Kip ended up taking November 13th off. He insisted that he had never asked Stone to sub in for him. Hmm. So in 1997, Hyman had several witnesses, including Stone, Hiley, and Kip, flown into Texas separately to talk to a federal grand jury that had been secretly convened to hear evidence about Alidar. In January 1998, the grand jury indicted Stone for perjury. Lundy, who had declared personal bankruptcy in 1998. So, sorry. Yep. So, this
0: is a crime that took place in, in Kentucky,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but ha- they have a grand jury in Texas.
1: Yes, because the it was the financial thing. Okay. Right? So, okay. yeah, it's all based there in Houston because of the bank thing. Mm. So, they're flying people in, okay. I guess, yeah, to Fair further testi- testify. Yeah. Okay, so. Lundy had declared personal bankruptcy back in 1992 and was supposed to be living in Florida and training horses for a small farm. Um, And so he was subpoenaed by the defense to testify at Stone's perjury trial, but he could not be located by U.S. Marshals. Hmm. Uh, The CFO of Calumet, um, his ex-wife, testified at the trial that she had overheard Lundy state, there are ways to get rid of the horse. Stone refused to testify, was sentenced to five months in jail, and put on an additional five months of house arrest. Hmm. So later in March 1999, Hyman has the Houston federal grand jury indict Lundy, who has since been found in Florida, and Matthews, who is now working as a lawyer in Lexington. The charges are bank fraud, conspiracy, bribery, and lying about the $1.1 million bribe to Frank Seahack. The short trial started in February 2000. Upon its conclusion, it took only three hours for the jury to find the pair guilty. I see. At the sentencing, Hyman called a surprise witness, George Pratt, to the stand. So Pratt is a professor at MIT who is also the chairman of the Association of Thoroughbred Owners Racetrack Safety Committee. Hmm. He had been asked a year earlier by Foster to analyze some evidence, which was a piece of the floor that had been cut out from the front of Alidar's stall. So Pratt was able to prove that the brackets that were intended to provide stability to Alidar's door had been removed earlier, based on comparisons of photo- photos taken by the Lloyds of London insurance adjuster Tom Dixon. Pratt also noticed, based on the shear on the bottom of the bolts, that the force had broke them came from outside of the stall rather than inside. Pratt determined that six 1,600 pounds of force would be required to kick the door off its hinges, while a door well, a horse could only deliver 2,000 pounds of pressure okay. with a kick. That's all. Mm-hmm. Not much. So he hypothesized that Alidar had been killed, this gets gruesome, when a rope was tied around his leg, attached to a truck, and the truck drove off. Mm. Lundy's motive, obviously, was to get the insurance money, which would cut Calumet's debt in half. Matthews stated later that although Lundy loved horses, he was also terrified as being the person who ruined Calumet. So he hypothesized that Lundy's desperate situation perhaps forced him to take the desperate measure that he did so that he could entice the Japanese investors. <laughs>
0: That's terrible. Mm
1: uh-huh. hmm. <laughs> The same time as all this stuff was going down, um, so they win all the Eclipse Awards, etc. 1991, Calumet is listed in the National Historic Registrar. Okay. Okay. Um, But then April 3rd, 1991, Lundy resigns as president of Calumet. And again, as we said earlier, at that time, Calumet had $400 in the bank. Yeah. And debts of 400 million. That's all. Yeah. During his time as president, Lundy did not draw a salar- salary from Calumet, but records show he was paid $5.8 million in commissions during his nine year run. Hmm. July 11th, 1991, Calumet Farm fired Chapter 11 petition to reorganize under the protection of a bankruptcy court. After filing for bankruptcy, Calumet is sold to Polish born Canadian businessman Henrik D. Katowski for $17 million. So as signing officers, the four grandchildren of Warren and Lucille, as well as Warren Jr.'s widow, Bertha, were liable for $80 million in loans. Whoa. Yeah. Cindy divorced Lundy.
0: <laughs> just in time. Yeah. I, I guess that lady who was yelling, but don't forget the rights at the award ceremony is like, mother.
1: you can forget about the rights.
0: Or, sorry. Yeah. Just <laughs> ignore us. We're not actually. Oh, we have signing authority. Oh, yeah. shoot.
1: Okay. So, and it's bringing it back around to to your question. um, The federal judge who was trying the case that uh, Hyman brought to court about the financial irregularities was not comfortable with the evidence about the horse being introduced at sentencing. Okay. So, ultimately, he stated that although there is evidence Mr. Lundy had the motive and opportunity to injure Alidar, and although there is some physical evidence, I am not able to conclude by the preponderance of the evidence that Mr. Lundy is responsible for the death of Alidar. Hmm. So, FBI agent Foster explained later that since fraud has a five-year statute, Lundy could not be charged with Alidar's death since too much time had already passed. Hmm. He and Hyman wanted the evidence on record, so that is why they disclosed at the sentencing. I see. Yeah, and it was a surprise when they did that. Yeah, no one knew it was coming. Yeah. Okay, so ultimately, Lundy was sentenced to four years in prison. And Matthews, the, the CFO and lawyer, was sentenced to 21 months in prison. Wow. In 2001, Lundy is caught attempting to bribe President Bill Clinton's brother with some investments in Argentina as a way to gain a presidential pardon. Lundy is not pardoned. In 2012, the Calumet Investment Group buys Calumet for $36 million. Frank Ciech went to trial in 1993, and then again in 1995, he was indicted again for another series of multi-billion-dollar schemes with Kitback. He was sentenced to 22 years in prison.
0: Well,
1: wow. Lundy was released from jail in January 2005. Uh, Alidar's son, Criminal Type, went on to stand at stud in Japan. <laughs>
0: I he went on to trial. I was like, "What? <laughs> no. What did he do?"
1: <laughs> no, so he was
0: also involved in his yeah
1: in well, his he's a like, father's type. death. Yeah, so attorney uh, Juliet Hyman got married in 1999 and now goes by the name of Julia Tomala. Okay. She continues to practice law and is situated in Washington D.C., but also has a Florida out-of-state listing. FBI Special Agent Rob Foster retired from the FBI in August 2017 and currently works as Director of Safety and Security for the Oakwood School in North Hollywood, California. So, although Alidar was unable to win the coveted Kentucky Derby in a desperate bid to raise cash, a mass bloodstock sale was undertaken at Keeneland in January 1991, and one of the horses that was sold off, his son Strike the Gold, did go on to win the 1991 Kentucky Derby. Huh? Yeah. Elidar's body was laid to rest at his birthplace, Calumet Farm, and out of respect, Elidar's stall remains unoccupied to this day. Oh. Yeah. But a sordid tale.
0: <laughs> a sordid tale, indeed. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so unfortunate. What a, oh well, there's no... Uh...
1: Yeah, as I all say. Humans are awful. Humans are
0: awful. But don't forget criminal type. He also, uh, oh wait, he was just a horse.
1: (laughs) If he had only won that race.
0: Well, I mean, it just feels like, it feels like there was smart people and then there was not smart people who Mm -hmm. took over and, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and uh, like there's no, no need for any of those things that happened. No,
1: but I think you were saying the other day about how people go through their first money, Mm. right? And you, what do you do? You You go through your first money and you keep your second money or what was it?
0: I think it was Ian who was saying that. Oh, okay. On, uh. Sneaky Dragon. Sneaky Dragon, yeah. That, uh. People go, yeah, people go through their first money. I can't remember who said mm-hmm, this. Yeah. I'm sure it wasn't me because I've never had first money to go through either.
1: <laughs> I'm still
0: waiting for my first money to go through. But, uh
1: but yeah, I think that's where this guy was. Yeah. He just like, woohoo, you know, he's like sitting on this pile of gold, just like, yeehaw, throwing stuff around. I know,
0: but that's, like I say, like it seemed like smart people,
1: yeah, you had, know, ran it and then it just right.
0: was handed over to someone who just wasn't like. Good, mm. uh, had no business sense, had no. no concept of how you run a business. No, he just was... Just saw it as like this sort of limitless fountain mm-hmm. of money that was going to keep pouring money out into his pockets. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think it was unfortunate Lucille didn't sell the farm. It was unfortunate that in the fact that she didn't sell it, they didn't just hire someone else. There was already a full staff there. Sure. But um yeah, I think he had just been lobbying so hard that he wore everyone down and made mm. people afraid to <laughs> not give it to him.
0: Yeah, I guess, but and it feels like her own kind of uh ego and uh, ego involvement in this mm-hmm. didn't didn't allow her to to uh make any wise choices near the end mm-hmm. so yeah,
1: yeah and it's still you know um speculation that he killed him anyways it's never been proven in a court, never of, law, in a court so of law so that's right
0: but it has been proven in the court of horse mysteries <laughs> the most important place to yeah no, not really mm-hmm. but yeah you know what it looks bad. It
1: does look bad. It looks
0: bad on people, and it's, it. uh I mean...
1: Aside from the fact that the horse died, the whole financial irregularity part of it is... Yeah, yeah. it's
0: it already... Kind of, but is it common for horses to break their leg kicking in stalls? Like, is it something that happens...
1: Horses certainly can break their leg, for sure. Of course. Um And, yeah, it's not unheard of that okay. they kick their stall and break a leg, but... It's it would be not more common. of like a,
0: it would, and if they did, it would be more like a corkscrew cr- fracture or something that was, mm-hmm. my, like a, a green not, stick or something Yeah, something like green that, stick, yeah. yeah, something like that. It was yeah. more like a, Simple
1: a fracture. Like a, yeah. Yeah,
0: just a lo- like a, like a line, like a fault line in the bone, mm-hmm. not, not a compound fracture no. where there's.
1: But yeah, the fact that if he did kick the door, if he did get his leg jammed in the door, you know, if he'd popped that door out and then the door slammed shut on mm-hmm. his leg mm-hmm. and then he had to pull the leg out. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's all the, possible. I it's guess, all but... possible. Like, I mean, horses can do crazy things and injure themselves for sure. Yeah. Right? But, um, yes, I think the, the timing with the insurance claims or with the insurance, mm-hmm. yeah, being, mm-hmm up shortly yeah i don't know it just looks very suspicious to me
0: do you think that that dixon was like the lloyd's of London guy was involved in it but it seems weird that you'd be boasting about how quickly
1: yeah i don't claim was paid i read no
0: johnny dollar yeah
1: i read a big article that he wrote in some magazine okay and he seemed very sincere Mm. he uh everything that i read about him he's a good Christian man, in the best sense of the word, okay. um, he was mm. very well respected. True. He was very well liked. Um, he was very by the book, by the numbers kind of guy. Okay, but yeah, it just is weird that he was allowed in, and the other insurance guy was not allowed in on the night of the yeah. injury as well.
0: That does sound odd to me.
1: Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it it almost seemed like he was good to the point of being naive, perhaps. But mm. you would not think a naive insurance agent would be the best yeah. job, yeah, description.
0: And you wonder it. if they let him in accidentally, and then when they found out, they're like, "Hey, don't let anyone else in. Like, we can't have people mm-hmm. poking around in this." Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's uh, it is it is all odd, yeah, very mm-hmm. odd. I mean, it's the fact that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff around it that's very suspicious, obviously. A, very, a lot of circumstantial evidence that points to that this was uh, this was something fishy. Just mm-hmm. the fact that the regular night watchman was, you know, yes. almost forced to take a night off right. by some mysterious guy coming up to him, you yeah. know, with an offer he couldn't refuse. Mm-hmm. And, the, yeah, the fishiness around the the selectiveness of how they let the insurance people in. It, just, yeah, it feels really odd mm-hmm. all, all around. Yeah, very. But who can say? It's a mystery yet, except yes. here in Horse Mysteries, where I declare, I don't know, I just I feel bad for the guy at the same time. Like, it feels like oh, yeah. it was a choice that he made to just torture him anyway, you know, uh-huh. but who knows? I don't want to, you know.
1: Yeah, desperate times, I guess.
0: Yeah. Just how emotional he was about it. Couldn't, uh-huh. couldn't, and and wanted it, and demanded, I guess, I don't know, or maybe he's just trying to look innocent by, by demanding that they try and repair the lake. Yeah,
1: it was, I mean, it was one of the things that it did say a a positive quality about Lundy was that he was supposed to be a very good horseman, you Mm. know, coming from nothing. Yeah. um, And he had bought this little farm and he was training horses and everything was done apparently to impress Lucille. Yeah. um, But he ended up having some stallions and he had built up a nice little place on his own right yeah. and through his own hard work and his own knowledge and ability. So I think, you know, there's that part of him, the horseman part that, yeah, yeah knew that if, if, if he did in fact do this, it was very wrong and didn't sit well, but at the same time, yeah, just the whole ego part, yeah. the yeah. living the life and not wanting to give that life up, yeah, yeah that yeah. takes over for sure.
0: Sure. Unfortunate all around. Mm-hmm. All right, dear. Well, that was uh, a very interesting story. And uh, I suppose we're going to be back with another interesting story.
1: Yes, we will.
0: Do we know what the title is? Uh,
1: the Luck of the Irish.
0: The Luck of the Irish. And what was the name of this one called? A criminal type? No, wait, sorry. Yeah. Uh,
1: not. There's more than one criminal type, I think. I was going to call it Ellie Darling, but then, I don't know. It was hard to come up with a name for this one.
0: You should have just called it criminal type.
1: Criminal type. Criminal type. Well, I was thinking of that, but then that's the horse and he yeah, was, right. he was not really, Yeah. I wanted to connect it to a horse, but I didn't want to be at all about him because it wasn't all about him. It I've was... got a title for you. What?
0: You can take it to the bank.
1: <laughs> okay. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll name it that. Rename. <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Thank you, dear. You're welcome. And so everyone, if you uh, enjoyed this episode, We're glad. And now let's look at some listeners' comments that came in from our last episode, which was episode four, If Looks Could Kill. That was our medical mystery. As we looked at, as we said earlier in the show, the uh, horse impressive, who uh, caused a bit of a problem in the (laughs) the quarter horse industry. H-Y-P-P. Yes. So Louise wrote to say, if you, Laurie, had started a medical mystery drama called Horse instead of House it might have unfolded like this week's episode. It was fascinating to hear how greed and pride led to this genetic defect getting passed down. As you were rattling off the many ailments that horses can suffer from, I flash back to a speech I had to memorize when I was in The Taming of the Shrew. I played Biondello, whose master, Petruchio, is about to marry Catherine, but he's keeping everyone waiting. Biondello runs in to report Petruchio is on his way, but he's wearing crazy old clothes and riding the horse equivalent of a junker of a car. And she quotes his horse hipped with an old motley saddle and stirrups of no kindred besides possessed with the glanders and like to mose in the chine troubled with the lampass infected with the fashions full of windgalls, bed with spavins rayed with the yellows past cure of the fives stark spoiled with the staggers benon with the bots swayed in the back and shoulder shotten near legged before which roughly translates as a swayback old horse with a moth-eaten saddle stirrups from two different sets a bad hip. "'swollen glands, lockjaw, leg ulcers, bed sores, arthritis, jaundice, a hernia, hives, worms, cancer, a mossy overbite, and post-nasal drip. He's knock-kneed too. "'The horse's tack is also old and, sh- and shoddy, a half-cheek bit, and a headstall of sheep's leather, which, being restrained to keep him from stumbling, hath been often burst, and now repaired with knots.' One girth six times pieced, and a woman's crupper of velour, which hath two letters from her name fairly set down in studs, and here and there pieced with pack thread. Elizabethan audiences understood all this terminology and could picture this poor horse in its gear. You wouldn't want to bring a horse to this. Sorry, you wouldn't want to bring a horse this sick on stage. It's an indication of how important horses were, as a means of transportation an indication of wealth. That Petruchio has found himself the worst horse in Mantua to ride to his wedding. It's part of his non-PC plan to tame Catherine's shrewish, shrewish nature by posing as the worst-dressed, worst-mounted bridegroom ever. And then Chris Roberts wrote to say, um, well, you you wrote, do you want, do you want to read your response? Do you want to read your no. response? You did say, well, let me just talk about it anyway, because I just have some interest in terms of, uh, and, uh, at least, or sorry, Louise is right to correct, uh, that it should be Padua, not Mantua. Mm-hmm. She was, she was thinking of the, uh...
1: Romeo and Juliet.
0: Yes. Ha ha, Louise, that's brilliant. Well, to be more precise, Shakespeare's brilliant. You're pretty darn smart, too. Sadly, horses are still prone to many of those afflictions. Growing up in Pony Club, we had to learn about lampus, swollen upper pellet, and windgalls, swollen fetlocks, ankles, not overly serious. And we still need to regularly deworm the horses for bots, which are plentiful around here in the fall. Yes, horses were definitely an integral part of society and were apparently the singular factor in the rapid spread of Western civilization. It was so important that they stay healthy, even if it was just purely for economic reasons. Yeah, it's pretty amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, Black Beauty by Anna Sewell was the first book that looked at horses as something, not just an economic thing, like okay. looked at horses as kind of like how they feel, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and yeah. And that they should have some quality of life.
0: Interesting. Yeah. When did it, uh, I guess I was just thinking that sort of kind of compares to um, Bambi by by the original, well, maybe not by the original author. I think it was majorly changed by Disney. But it it seemed like a time where animals became not these sort of uh, impersonal objects, but started to have personalities. Mm -hmm. Something like Bambi, you know, giving character to animals that were previously viewed as just food sources, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. And I, like to, and I also think one of my favorite books by uh, Charles Dickens, Dombey and Son, has this scene in it that's so unimaginable if you've been to London, which is a scene of two characters riding their horses across London. Like this, you know, they're they're going places, right? right. And you yeah. you never think to yourself. Like you're used to thinking of as carriages going around London. Mm-hmm. But the idea of two characters just riding on horseback uh-huh. through Victorian London mm-hmm. is almost mind-blowing when you read it in that book because it's not, not something you've ever considered before and it's not something really ever shown in popular culture, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when you read, like, you're used to seeing people riding horses through the woods and, like, a, you know, like a Sherlock and like a uh, Robin Hood sort of setting mm-hmm. or, or whatever. But when you, the idea of like through all this, you know, Victorian architecture of, you know, like past gas lamps, past mm-hmm. what, whatever, there's people just riding two horses. Yeah. And it's just an amazing scene in that way because it just—I'm sure at the time it was just like "Yo ho hum," yeah. <laughs> what a normal scene! But to, as a you know, as a reader now reading it, it just it just really changes how you you view horse horse use in that time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris Roberts also wrote to say, "Fascinating story. At first, I thought I was going to miss the cold-hearted femme fatales, seedy gamblers, petty criminals, wicked uncles, and plucky gals called Ginger from previous episodes, but you drew me in." <laughs> So that's nice. Thank you both for writing. And if anyone else would like to write to us, we are writable the following ways. Uh, You can go to our website. We are on sneakydragon.com. And there you'll find episodes of Horse Mysteries. And there you'll find a comment section that you can write comments in. And we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to write an email to us, our email address is sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. So once again, everyone, thank you for listening to this bi-weeks episode oh man i'm pulling in a term from uh listening party here i apologize <laughs> i don't want to get lisa mad at me like mary was constantly mad at me in two weeks time you can join us and uh, uh listen to the next episode which again dear was called or it's going to be called
1: the luck of the irish
0: the luck of the irish everyone just in time for saint patrick's day don't oh, we missed it by a month <laughs> all right everyone we'll see you soon bye bye